Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the IT News Podcast. Our guest this week is John Cox, the CTO of Coles Group. There's a lot of interesting things happening at Coles, including an in-progress shift to an events-based architecture. This has wide-ranging use cases, from in-store replenishment and reducing out-of-stocks on e-commerce orders, through to anticipating customer service and listing next best actions for team members. We also discuss the group's IT strategy and why adoption of cloud services is not a specific strategic pillar. We hope you enjoy the conversation. It might be good to start if you can talk a little bit about what technology and IT operations at Coles Group looks like. In terms of the dimensions of Coles IT, the way I would describe it is there's about 1,500 people that we have on a permanent basis. We have a fairly large partner ecosystem. I won't name all of the names, but it's a large corporate, I guess is the best way of describing it. It's got a core Oracle ERP that we use from an operational perspective. We've got SAP, which is running our core financial ledgers across all of the brands. And then we've got a whole range of systems that sit in there that do things like replenishment. So a really rich machine learning platform that we've built. There's a number of products that we have that are essentially driving the customer experience. You think about NCR, all of your self-service. It's a really, really important part of the ecosystem. And then you go all the way through to models that we're building around machine vision and partnerships with NVIDIA and Microsoft and Google, Databricks, Snowflake. I mean, like most large corporates, we've got a lot of partnerships that are important. And then we've got all the services that we work with, of which Accenture, HCL, Capgemini are really important partners. And for anybody else who's listening, who's not been mentioned, of course, it's a matter of time that we're talking about rather than significance to us. Did you want to talk a little bit about how the technology operations have changed since you joined Coles Group? The way I look at this is the first job of any incoming CTO is to make sure that the systems are up and running. And we talk about enabling and ensuring that customers can continue to shop. The big shift for me is really looking at, I mean, this is classic ITIL. There's nothing kind of radical here, but it's what's your deep root cause analysis and make sure you've got all of the capability in place and you're systemically getting through all of the incidents that you've got, turning them into problems and then taking them out. We could have been having this conversation 20 years ago and I would have said the same thing. Like that's the most important thing. The number of times that I've, in my past, you know, you've turned up to have a deep strategy conversation with another part of the organization and if they can't access their emails you can forget being a, and it might just be that their password's been locked or it could be anything along those lines so i think about it like maslow's hierarchy of needs you've got to get that basics right so we've invested more money in that that had started before i came on board Part of it is looking at the infrastructure that supports the customer experience. So if you think about the self-service checkouts and actually the staff checkouts, we've been systematically replacing those because that's the point that customers feel at the most. We've been modernizing the underlying systems as well, replacing them and upgrading them, shifting from, I guess, batch processes through to more event-driven architecture and also into containerized solutions. So it's organizing the team around that shift in work. Part of that is moving to an agile model, but we're not doing that everywhere. 
my experience is that the technology needs to change in order for the agile ways of working to be successful. Otherwise, you end up with what I'd call agile theater, where you're kind of building it and putting it up on campans, but it's actually not really enabling you to travel at pace. So the tech is an important part of how we transition those teams. The other part that we're really focused on is increasing business context of the tech team. Like, again, any large corporate, there's a lot of people who have been here for extended periods of time, and they actually have deep business understanding, but you've got to make sure that that's through the whole team. When I think about IT strategy, to me, it's a synthesis of what is the business trying to achieve now. And it's a little bit of the art of imagining what might be required to be able to create flexibility in the future. And I think one thing that is certain is that we don't know what is going to happen within the retail landscape. There's an immense amount of competition. It makes it exciting, but it also requires us to think about building in flexibility. I think Jeff Bezos described it most accurately as what are the decisions that you make, which are one-way doors that you can't come back from, and which ones are two-way doors so you can step in and step out. And so when we're thinking about the IT architecture, that's an important part. Now, that's not a pure technology view. You actually have to deeply understand the business to be able to unlock that insight. My background was not retail. I came from largely financial services and then worked at Aussie Post for a while. And you start to see patterns in different businesses. And when you think about retail, we need to be able to move at a much, much faster pace than any other organization that I've worked in because it is highly competitive, highly disruptive, and consumer patterns can shift on a dime. And you saw that through COVID. So coming back to your question, we've organized the team around lines of business so that they can build deep context. And then through those teams, there are centers of excellence around technology. So it might be that one of my GMs actually has the business relationship, has that deep context, but they might hand it over to a different engineering team in a different part of the tech organization. And so we're getting some scale we're getting deep expertise in the technology, but then we've got people who have got deep business context that help direct them. So it's trying to get the best out of both models that way. In order to make that work, you've obviously got to have a team that is highly collaborative. And as a result, when I've selected my team, the technical skills were very important, but the human dimension of them and how they would fit together and bring diversity of thought, but also be able to collaborate was an important part of constructing that team. And it's not very often in your career that you get to build a team completely from scratch. You know, when I came in, there were quite a few vacancies at the leadership team. So I've been able to build a team that from my perspective and the way it's showing up is like a dream team. So that's the way we've approached it. I feel like you've probably just discussed a whole bunch of pillars of the IT <laughs> strategy there. And so maybe if we can lead in a little bit to the IT strategy, but I feel like you've probably already flagged some areas such as the need to move fast, which probably looks more like around the architecture and the containerization, the event-driven approach. Talked about a partial move around agile, talked around more business orientation of the technology team. But it'd be useful to understand how all this fits within the IT strategy itself and how it aligns to some of the key pillars. Yeah. Well, the reason why, as I kind of went through that, is obviously you have to arrange your team around the strategy that you're trying to execute. So that's why it's deeply interconnected. If I was to describe the IT strategy in its simplest form, it really is make sure that customers can keep shopping. So that's make sure your systems are always on. And that has investments and practices and processes that sit around that. You then have deliver value at pace. So the important part of that is 
the tech organization needs to understand what represents value in an organization. And for us, and most organizations, obviously there's the commercial outcomes, there's the NPS from a customer perspective, and then there's engagement. So you want to make sure that the tools that you're giving to your team, whether it's a tech team or in our instance, the 135,000 employees of Coles, that that is as enabling as it can be and taking out waste from their activity so they can focus on things that make a difference to customers. And you want to do that as fast as you can, but the value and the pace need to go together. So the way I describe it is you can build a really fast car, but if you drive in the wrong direction, you might as well walk because it's a long way around the world and you probably can't get there in a car anyway. So that context and business context around value is super important, but you also want to do it as fast as you can. To unlock that, we think about how do you build the tech architecture to enable that flexibility that I described. There's many ways of doing that. The way I look at it, and I learned this actually in my last job, was you don't just apply tech architectural principles. You actually have to look at the overall environment and assess what are the choke points? What is it that's slowing down the organization? For us, one of those choke points is around our batch and our release process associated with that. So part of the strategy is how do you decouple some of your batch processing? And you think about a supermarket, it is actually a series of batch processes. You work out what are the things that you need to put in a truck and that you need to then put in a shelf. And you do that in batches, like a truck is a form of a batch. It's a group of items assembled together. And then you think about that at a warehouse level, that's another level of batch. You think about that at a state level. And so there is still inherently batch processes that are gonna exist in this business going forward. But there's also a lot of value that you can create by moving to more of an event-based architecture. So more and more, you think about customers and our strategy is to be omni-channel. So it's take the digital experience and to play that out while they're in store. And likewise, when they're in store, if they can't find what they want to enable them to easily get what they want sent to their home. And so in that context, that's not a batch process, that's real time. You need to trigger events. You need to be thinking about what's the experience they're having. You need to understand not what stock was on the shelf in the morning, but actually what stock is there right now. And when you're picking for home delivery, you need to know exactly what's there so that you don't offer something to a customer that they can't have. When you're thinking about the checkout process and you're offering them deals that are relevant to them, you need to do that in real time as well. So that shift to the event architecture is another really big unlocker for us. The other part that is a key part of our shift is once you've got the event-based architecture, that needs to trigger some kind of insight that drives action. And so the insight is the machine learning part. And I think Coles has done an enormous amount of work in machine learning around its supply chain and replenishment processes. The example that has kind of caught my imagination since I've been here is I was out at a store on a Thursday before Good Friday, and we were going through the machine learning models, and we realized that that is the biggest day for selling lemons. Post fact, you can kind of see the connection, but before it, it's not inherently obvious. It's that kind of correlation that's important. And then those machine learning models are actually becoming more sophisticated. They're being driven at a day-to-day -day basis. We're seeing a shift in the models running at the moment where more and more people are shopping on a Sunday. So we've got to make sure that the replenishment is there for that. 
We're also seeing people shifting to a fortnightly shop cycle, which corresponds with pay cycles, which also corresponds with the inflationary pressure that people are experiencing. So these models need to be incredibly dynamic. And that's what machine learning is really powerful at that change based off trends that are emerging, which if you think about that in the batch context, and you think that in a procedural process, you just can't run like that anymore. So to make sure that we've got the best product for customers at the right time to extend the shelf life and more importantly, to extend the pantry life, machine learning is a critical part. And that also plays into what are the offers that we dish up to customers that we're doing through flybys, which is increasingly a machine learning model to understand what have you looked at, what might you be interested in pulling all the information together so that you get the best deal at the right time. So that's the other big part of the architecture. Probably something that you might expect me to say that I haven't mentioned is the migration to the cloud. That for us is something that we will do. We've definitely migrated chunks to the cloud, but it's not necessarily a pillar of the strategy. We think if we can do it on cloud, if we can do it at the right price point and it solves a problem for us, then we do it. We're not picking up and moving VMs to the cloud in the way that I think some organizations have done in the past. It's if we can containerize it and it's going to create higher speed and create more business value, then we will migrate it. The other thing that is a little bit different in a supermarket as well is edge. So we obviously do an awful lot at the edge. The supermarket itself can run on its own. I mean, you go into any supermarket and you'll find a series of racks and capability there that can run the supermarket. Obviously, payments has a floor of a couple of hundred dollars now, so that can run offline. So we think about the edge in that context. And then there's machine vision use cases. Out at Southland, we've just deployed the DALI-Q analysis, which basically looks at body movement and identifies whether somebody is waiting at the DALI and will then call the people at the back of the DALI to come forward. And there's some really interesting human behaviors there. We found that customers actually don't really want to ring a bell. They would rather that you come out and anticipate that they're there. Australian culture is really very polite, even though kind of the external perception might be a bit brash. I think it's an incredibly polite culture. So we're using the footage to determine are people walking past and not interested in the deli or are they actually waiting at the deli? And just in case anybody's wondering, there's no facial recognition that occurs there. It's actually just body movement that we're using. So to be able to do that in real time, that's an edge use case. The same thing with detecting fresh produce at our smart scales. And also as people are checking out, we're increasingly looking at what's the products that they're purchasing. Can we make that a faster process for when they're checking out as well. So all of that has got to be governed by the speed of light, which means we run an awful lot at the edge. We build those models in the cloud. All of our data and machine learning models are built in the cloud because you need to scale and it's very spiky when you're running those models and building them. It's large and then it comes down. But there's a whole range of use cases that still actually make sense for us in our data centers. But anyway, there's lots of dimensions to the tech strategy. There are, and I'm hoping to just dig into a couple of those areas. But just before I do that, Delhi Q sounds really interesting. In a past life, I was a night filler, but I was also trained uh -huh. in Delhi as well. Um, so I did Delhi at night. But because you're so thin spread at that time of evening, it's up to the customer to go and find you or find someone yeah. who, who can serve yeah. them. So it's interesting. How are you actually measuring intent? The intent is actually about the dwell time. So if you're just walking past, you can just tell that. There's, I guess, a path that you're traversing. You think about when you walk past something, there's a pace and there's a motion and there's a style of walking that you undertake. When you're looking at somebody who wants to go to the deli, 
they'll actually approach the deli and they'll dwell for a period of time. And the amount of that dwell time, it's possible that somebody's just stopped in front of it and they're looking at their phone on the trolley. You can also see that. So it's that kind of gross motor movement I would describe it as that we're analysing to determine that. And so for the people that are working in the back of the store, are they just looking at a screen up? Yeah, no, it applies them as a screen at the moment. As we move to more event-based architecture in the store, it'll be the next best action for somebody, of which the screen feeds in. But there's, as you can imagine, in a supermarket, if you've worked in one, you know there's more jobs to be done than can possibly be done. And so what you want to do is then work out what's the highest priority at that point in time. And that's where the event-based architecture will come. Actually, you know, you might be doing fill and then at the next moment, there might be a rush order that's come in from an online delivery that you need to go around and pick. So we haven't built that yet. That's part of the longer term strategy there as we're redesigning the core to enable those kind of recommendations. That's the big piece that we'll be working on next. Next best action would be a very interesting introduction to a supermarket environment, I think. I've been here for 18 months, so I'm still learning a lot about this business. And I've been surprised at just how complex the business is and all of the tasks that need to be done from when we're cooking hot chickens, what's the right time to cook them through to there's health regulations about how long they can be under the heat before you have to get rid of them. So when do you put the markdown price on those chickens so that they still sell and are still within the health and safety guidelines? It's through to actually this particular product is empty and we can tell it's empty. And we're actually doing this right now with machine learning models. We anticipate actually what's been sold, but also what hasn't been sold and it should have been sold. So let's take cornflakes as an example. That's a product that moves pretty regularly. If you're not getting the level of sales at a point in day, you probably don't have the cornflakes on the shelf. And so even though we may not see that it's been sold, we can anticipate that it should have been sold. And so somebody will go to the back and bring those out so that it fills that part of the shelf. So you don't have to fill everything all at one time. So there is a bit of that next best action that we've been building in through the machine learning models and trying to anticipate what should have been sold and what hasn't been sold as well as what has been sold. And that would particularly help with promotional items as well, like end displays and other things where you've got linkages with advertisers and people that are actually providing promotional pricing. A lot of that is based on high volume movement as well. Absolutely. If you've got something on promotion, that's a perfect example of something that tends to move faster. So if you're not getting the sales that you would expect, there's a trigger that notifies a team member to go and actually have a look and load it. And we use that to prioritize the activity during the day. And it's a fine balance in a supermarket, as you will know. You don't want to have a whole lot of people pushing trolleys around because that congests and chokes up the store. So you want to do most of your fill at night, but you then want to make sure that if there are products that have just been selling like hotcakes, that you get them in there as well. Just starting to unpack a couple of other things you mentioned. So just going back to the start of talking about strategy and actually the start of the conversation, you talked about efforts around continuity. So I'm assuming that there's some stuff there that you might be able to talk about around adding resilience and also potentially redundancy to some of the systems and to some of the core kind of processes that are happening in store particularly, but also online as well. So I wondered if you could talk yeah. there about what your thinking is about how much redundancy you put in and around some of these core systems. So through the pandemic, what's really clear has been that supermarkets are critical. So under SOCI, the Critical Infrastructure Act, supermarkets fall into that category. So we need to make sure that our systems are resilient to meet that need. I mean, 
there's a deeper need, I would argue. Like it's not just about legislation, it's about making sure customers can do what they need to do. So in that context, we have obviously taken another really good look at the resilience. The way we look at it, and having lived through major bank outages, and at one point in my career being completely responsible for making sure that we never had that kind of outage again, it gets you to think about how do you design for failure? And that starts, in my view, at the level of the line of code. So you need to be thinking and assuming that things are going to break elsewhere, and how do you elegantly handle that? So that's a deep design principle that you've got to assume that everybody else is going to break, even if you don't break, when you're designing parts of your system. And it's likewise for us. You think about the supermarket. I talked about the fact that we can run offline for a period. When we look at our dependency on network, we're also thinking about how do you make sure that that stays up? And you know, things like SD-WAN give you redundancy there because you can have multi-carriers or you can have multi-technology, whether it's mobile or whether it's fiber failover. So at that level, we're thinking about redundancy because it's important that whenever you walk into a store, you can buy what you're after. The last thing people want is to go to the checkout and it either doesn't work or they can't pay. Like that's the most frustrating experience when you're trying to just get in and get out and get on with the rest of your life. So we look at it at that level. In terms of like deeper into the environment, in our on-prem, we've got multi-data centers, we've got hot failovers for our core systems. Things like our replenishment process, we design it so that it will build future views of what that replenishment should look like. So what I mean by that is all of the machine learning models I described will give you a really accurate view about what you need tomorrow. They'll give you a pretty good view about the next day and the further out you get, the less accurate those models are because you're just not dealing with the latest information. But we always build those models for a fortnight out so that if you do have a failure in your replenishment models, that you can pick up the one that is not as perfect as it would be if you ran it, but a pretty good model. So there's redundancy at that level. And then we're also thinking about when we design anything to run in the cloud, that's all about redundancy and resilience as well. I think about it in terms of containers, because when you're building at that microservices level, you can run multi-region. If you need to, I mean, not all of our services are built this way, but you could, in theory, like say there was a big failure in one of our cloud providers that you could pick it up and potentially run it elsewhere. A lot of the time, though, what you build on the cloud is benefiting from the investment in the underlying cloud infrastructure. There's only a few services that you need that could be multi-cloud. And so that feeds into how we think about redundancy on that level. And so there's risk assessments that you're undertaking to determine that. That's kind of the way we think about right from the code level all the way through to sort of more structural pieces. The other part for us is thinking about business continuity. So how do we fail over to multiple sites? Like let's say we had a flood in one area. How do we make sure that the systems can be flexible enough to make recommendations to cater for those types of scenarios as well? So that business continuity is an important part. The pandemic has certainly trained us in how to do that efficiently and effectively. And then you add on top of that the weather patterns that have occurred over the last few years. It's taught us to be really mindful of how do you manage for adversity in different scenarios. The second pillar you mentioned was delivering value at pace. So I'm interested in maybe deconstructing that a bit and understanding a bit about how you're measuring, particularly the value, and how you're counterbalancing that against the pace that you're expecting things to be delivered or features to be delivered. 
Anyone who's worked in IT will know that it doesn't matter how much value or how fast you deliver, you're always going to be told that you're too slow and too expensive. So I think we should just acknowledge that as a universal phenomena. When we look at it, though, to answer your question a bit more directly, the value side has, in my mind, just three dimensions. What is the commercial value? So what's the return on investment? What is the customer value that you're creating? So that usually gets measured as MPS. We also look at customer lifetime value, and then it's the team member experience. So there's a set of questions that get asked in our engagement survey, and most organizations have this, which is how easy are your tools and processes? That's one of the really important measures for us. Is that getting better? And are we delivering the value on that front? Now, obviously, any specific project or any particular ongoing agile team or product team will measure specifics that are both lead and lag measures that ultimately ladder up to one of those three. And for the teams that we have moved to agile, we have, and this is pretty standard stuff, but we look at it on a quarterly basis. What is it that we said we're going to do? What's the value that we're going after? Have we achieved that? Do we need to pivot? And then you run your retrospectives and you pursue value at that level. Again, like most organizations, we also have a multi-year corporate plan, which lays out what are you doing in the next set of quarters, but then what are you trying to achieve in a year's time, in two years' time, three years' time? Acknowledging that the later out you get, the less certainty you have around those targets, but you always keep them in mind as you're building things to make sure that you're creating flexibility and you're not locking things out. So that's the value side. In terms of the speed side, I've tried this many, many times, and there's no universal measure. So the way we think about the speed is actually one of personal best. How long did it take you to do a unit of work last time? Are you getting better? You can't compare building a container for your website to a deployment in SAP. They're completely different units of measure and the architecture will drive what is speed. So there's that constant how are we getting better? Are we driving more automation? Have we learned from what we've done before? And importantly, when you put the two together, are you working on the right things that unlock value at pace? There's so many activities that sit around that. You know, I talk about our batch processing. We're gradually changing the architecture so you can deploy parts of that faster. So there's an architectural dimension to it. When you're doing automation, you're actually optimizing the localized component of it and making that faster. You look at work practices, are there wait times? And so you compress that. So there's lots of elements to how do you get faster? Some of the deep structure and some of it, I guess, localized optimization of activity. So that's how we think about that. As I mentioned, not everything can move to the agile model. And I think you can disrupt a lot of teams to feel like you're moving to an agile model when you're actually not creating that level of value. I mean, it doesn't make sense for our help desk, for example, to move to an agile model. Just on value as well, I know this wasn't specifically part of the IT strategy, but you mentioned cloud migration as well. And it was interesting, the context that you mentioned, and I was listening to another retail CIO recently talking about how this kind of undifferentiated cloud service, they were kind of moving away from that and really focusing more on bringing in really outcomes-based cloud services, things that would have a real impact on a specific process or problem within the retail environment and chasing that as a focus. So I'm interested in just learning a little bit more, I guess, about your approach to that. It sounds somewhat similar in terms of the way yeah. that you're approaching, particularly machine learning is very much the same. You're looking at specific problems, specific instances. You're not necessarily wanting a more generic machine learning service that you then have to go and configure to a very specific retail problem. 
The way I think about this, it is very much outcome driven. I think that's a really good way of describing it. I think the difference in retail probably is that we're a lower margin business. And as I said, the pace of retail as an outsider, when I first came in, I was like, wow, like we are looking at things every week and saying, what do we need to adjust? Having spent the bulk of my career in financial services, you don't do it at that pace. They're different kind of cadences and they're different kind of problems that you're solving for. So I think that that combination of pace and outcome is really important. The way I look at this is we're not going to be ideologically driven. And I think some of the views around, you know, we're going to migrate everything to cloud can be a little bit ideological. And what it can do is get you caught up in undertaking something for the sake of the thing itself rather than for one of those three things that I always come back to, customer, shareholder, or team member. And if moving to the cloud solves one of those three, it's a no-brainer. If it helps you get faster at deploying, it's a no-brainer. And in many, many instances, it does. So that's the approach that we take. I think the machine learning point that you made is a really good one. The way I think about machine learning is really in terms of I'm always going to go a little bit philosophical on you here, but it's about regions of being. And if you think about the way we approach problems as humans, we break things up into little bits and pieces to solve them. Like I'm sitting next to a chair. I think about what is it that is a chair? There are lots and lots of types of chairs. And so what is it that I want to do with it? Is it an aesthetic thing? Is it, do I just want it to be stable? Do I want it to be able to cater for people? Is it something I need to be able to carry? There's lots and lots of ways of looking at the problem of a chair. And so a general machine learning piece doesn't actually solve my problems in that respect. You've got to build those models. And when you look at retail, not only have you got all the products that you need to be thinking about, you then have the dimension of what is it that is happening at a local level. So our ranging is increasingly being done at a store level, which is about the demographic that lives there, what sort of products they're interested in? Are there specific ethnicities of food? Is there a bias towards certain types of ways of eating, whether it's gluten-free, whether it's veganism, vegetarianism? That's another set of problems that you're just not going to pick up a general model. And even, let me just give you an example of selection of fruit. If I took a general model, the way a peach looks in Australia is very different to how a peach looks in the U.S., in the US, they defuzz them. So they look more like nectarines. So even the models that you apply <laughs> don't apply and the types of apples that we have here are different. So there's lots of reasons why you end up looking at the outcome and localizing a lot of these models. Coming back to my region of being, you kind of collect all of those models and you end up with a category, which is a set of fruit. And then you have a different set, which is for grocery. And then you pull them all together and then you end up with a model that describes everything that you have in the store. And I'm talking here vision, but it's a similar way when you're looking at product categories as well. Mm. And just when you're speaking about ranging there, I think it's a good seg to go into the more granularity that you were talking about in terms of breaking up batch processes and being able to change decisions, I guess, at more points in the end-to-end -end supply chain or value chain. And so I just wondered if you could just give us a sense of some of the work that you're doing there. In particular, I'm interested in how many sort of trigger points there are now or how many you want there to be where you're able to change the decision as stock is moving through that kind of process, such that if you see an opportunity for stock to be delivered somewhere else or for rerouting to occur, that you're able to affect that rather than it simply being decided that's the assembly of the truck at the warehouse and that's where mm. it's going to end up. So one of the things that we've launched is Vitron, which is the largest automated DC in the Southern Hemisphere. We've got one in, in Queensland and one in New South Wales, which will service basically the East Coast. 
And when I talk about this, it's actually just blows your mind when you go into one of these facilities. It's like seven stories high, multiple football fields in terms of the scale of it. And essentially what it does is trucks will come in and the pallets will come off them. So whether it's baked beans or cornflakes or whatever the product is, and it automatically lifts them and puts them into storage. And then it will pull them down and automatically assemble them into the pallet that needs to go to the store. So the reason why that's important is as long as you can build models that feed into that algorithm that determines what's going to go onto that pallet that then gets shipped out to the store, you can do that right up to the last point. There are some macro trends that you need to have built in the models because you don't want to be storing a high volume item right up in the top at the back. You want to put that as close to the workflow as possible. So there's some macro trends, but then there's also that micro model that gets built. And the way we've designed that is completely modern architecture that feeds through into it and gives us flexibility that does a combination of things. It looks at what I described before, what has been sold, as well as what we think is going to be sold the next day. And that takes into account regional weather patterns. It looks at even festivals or events that are happening in a local area because we think that's going to happen the next day and the weather. You're more likely to sell watermelons when it's a sunny day. You're more likely to sell hot chickens actually when it's a sunny day because people are going for picnics and depending on the weekend and all that sort of stuff. So all of that feeds through into those models. So we want to make that decision. You know, you want to give leads that give you strong signals as early as you can. And we can see that out for the next sort of 12 months. And you want to give that to your suppliers as well because they need to know the macro trends so that they can produce what you need. And then you want to give the weaker but still significant signals as close to the point in which they get loaded into the truck as possible. So the combination of that high level automation with the machine learning models gives us, we think, the greatest flexibility and will also mean that, and particularly in Fresh, that we improve the pantry life for the customer. So that's how that all fits together. Maybe it's not for the podcast, but out of personal interest, I remember as a filler, <laughs> one of the biggest bugbears of stuff that comes off the trucks is that it's in a completely random order compared to the way that it sits on the shelf. And so you spend yeah. hours dividing it up onto different trolleys so that when the actual fill team comes in, they don't waste time having to drop the boxes in different aisles. Does Witron solve some of that? Yeah, so they have their planograms, which describe what's where in the store. And that's all determined by what is going to be convenient for customers at what point and what's logical when it's together. Vitron does take that into account. And then to your point, it actually helps to optimize even the number of steps. So you know what needs to go where. And so that will speed up that process. And it's actually part of getting things to the shelf faster, which comes to my point about you want to make sure it's got the longest pantry life that it can have for the customer. Now, I'm aware we've kind of gone really off track or just kind of circled around <laughs> a lot of our question. Well, I think we've covered a lot of them, but was there I one that we didn't? Do you know, I think we've talked about the tech strategy here. When I look at this, I always think about what do you need to make this successful? And it always comes down to the people that you hire. And the problems that we have, some of them are solvable and they're knowable, but a lot of them are yet to be solved for. The way we think about this is how do you, one, get the talent that you need, right? There's the technical talent, like particular development languages, full stack developers through to data scientists. How do you attract them? And part of it is the interesting, exciting work that we're doing. As a company, we're spending about $1.4 billion on investments on an annual basis, so an enormous amount to transform the underlying business. So that's exciting. But you also need to make sure that you've got diversity of thought. 
And so we look very broadly around that. And when I talk about diversity of thought, for me, I'm a big fan of STEAM. Having people who bring creativity is really important to the problem solving, as well as the customer experience and the design. We've got a number of programs like the Relauncher program, which is designed to attract people who might have wanting a change of career. So they've got other life experiences, or they might have had time off to look after their kids. And I know personally, having had a couple of years where my first son was born, you know, you've got to come back into the workforce and your skills are slightly different. And in my instance, even changing country at that time. So we've got a program that builds that. We've actually doubled the number of intakes this year. There's the grad program. We've also doubled the grad program. I think an organization like Coles has a responsibility to actually build future technologists. They may not spend the rest of their career here, but the sort of scale that we have, we want to really invest in those people, give them great experiences. They might go away and then actually come back later in their careers after they've got other experiences. We've also got programs for people with disabilities and also making sure that we're catering for them. So there's some different life experiences. And you think about a company like Coles is representing the whole community. Everybody shops. So it helps with the design. Actually, there's talent pools that are not being tapped into. So that's how we think about the talent piece. And for me, again, on quite a personal level, I think education has the ability to transform people's lives and opportunities. So that investment in training, we've been dialing up and making sure that we are skilling people for the future, where we're transitioning from one technology to another, investing in the training for people on that front is really important. I think for me, as I said, on a personal basis, but for people who work here and then also commercial outcomes, because we started off talking about context and that business context is so important. And there's so much deep knowledge that exists in the teams and you might be on an older technology, but that business context is invaluable when you transition the technology. So investing in people on that front is important for us as well. So I think the people side, to me, it's great to have a strategy, but you need the people to execute it. You need the people to work through the gnarly, interesting problems. And the more diverse that thinking is, the more likely you are to find new ways of solving problems. We talked a bit about how what we don't do is just apply just straightforward patterns. I'm looking for people to find those choke points that are slowing us down or getting in the way of customers. And that diversity of thought is so important for us. And it starts at the top. My leadership team is really a very diverse group in terms of education, gender, countries that they've lived in and worked in and that they were brought up in. So all of that plays to how do you solve problems that are unknowable at the moment. That was John Cox from Coles Group, and that's the podcast for this week. We'll be back with an exciting new interview next week. Until then, you can catch all the latest headlines in Australian IT over at itnews.com.au.